Section 22 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 12, Part 1, James J. Hill. The armed fleets of an enemy approaching our harbors would be no more alarming than the relentless advance of a day when we shall have neither sufficient food nor the means to purchase it for our population. The farmers of a nation must save it in the future, just as they built its greatness in the past. James J. Hill James Jerome Hill has one credential, at least, to greatness. He was born in a log house. But let the painful fact be stated at once, without apology, that he could never be President of the United States because this historic log house was situated in Canada. The exact spot is about three miles from the village of Rockwood, Wellington County, Ontario. Rockwood is seven miles east of Guelph, 40 from Toronto, and 100 from Buffalo. Mr. Hill well remembers his first visit to Toronto. He went with his father, with a load of farm produce. It took two days to go and two to return, and for their load, they got the princely sum of seven dollars with which they counted themselves rich. James Hill, the father of James Jerome Hill, was a North of Ireland man. His wife was Anne Dunbar, good and Scotch. I saw a portrait of Anne Dunbar Hill in Mr. Hill's residence at St. Paul, and was also shown the daguerreotype from which it was painted. It shows a woman of decided personality, strong in feature, frank, fearless, honest, sane, and poised. The dress reveals the columnar neck that goes only with a superb bodily vigor. The nose is large, the chin firm, the mouth strong. She looks like a Spartan, save for the pensive eyes that gaze upon a world from which she has passed, hungry and wistful. The woman certainly had ambition and aspiration which were unsatisfied. James J. Hill is the son of his mother. His form, features, mental characteristics, and ambition are the endowment of mother to son. It was a tough old farm, then as now. As I trampled across its undulating acres a week ago and saw the stone fences and the piles of glacial drift that Jim Hill's hands helped pick up, I thought of the poverty of the situation when no railroad passed that way, and wheat was twenty cents a bushel and pork one cent a pound, all for the lack of a market. Jim Hill, as a boy, fought the battle of life with axe, hoe, maul, adze, shovel, pick, mattock, draw shave, rake, and pitchfork. Wool was carded and spun and woven by hand. The grist was carried to the mill on horseback, or if the roads were bad, on the farmer's back. All this pioneer experience came to James J. Hill as a necessary part of his education. Life in Canada West in the 40s was essentially the same as life in western New York at the same period. The country was a forest traversed with swamps and sinkholes on which roads were built by laying down long logs and across these small logs. This formed the classic corduroy road. When ten years of age, James Hill contracted to build a mile of corduroy road between his father's farm and the village. For this labor, his father promised him a two-year-old colt. The boy built the road all right. It took him six months, but the grades were easy and the curves so-so. The Tom Sawyer plan came in handy. Otherwise, it is probable there would have been a default on the time limit. And Jim got the colt. He rode the animal for half a year, 
back and forth all winter from the farm to the village, where he attended the famous Rockwood Academy. Then, someone to whom the elder hill was indebted signified a desire for the colt, and the father turned the horse over to the creditor. When little Jim went out and found that the stall was empty, he had a good cry, all by himself. Three years after this, when his father died, he cried again, and that was the last time he ever wept over any of his own troubles. From his seventh to his fourteenth year, young Jim Hill attended the Rockford Academy. This academy had about thirty boarding boys and a dozen day scholars. Jim Hill was a day scholar and the pride of the master. The boy was studious, appreciative, grateful. He wasn't so awfully clever, but he was true. The master of the academy was Professor William Weatherald, stern to view, but very gentle of heart. His wife was of the family of Balls. The Ball family moved from Virginia two generations before to western New York, and then, when the Revolutionary War was on, slid over to Ontario for political reasons best known to themselves. There was quite an emigration to Canada about then, including those worthy Mohawk Indians whose descendants, including Longboat the Runner and Princess Veroka, are now to be found in the neighborhood of Brentford. And certainly the Indians were wise for Canada has treated the Red Brother with a degree of fairness quite unknown on this side of the line. As for the Tories, but what's the need of arguing? The Balls traced to the same family that produced Mary Ball, and Mary Ball was the mother of George Washington. So, ta so tangled is this web of pedigree, and George Washington, be it known, got his genius from his mother, not from the tribe of Washington. William Weatherall died at an advanced age, near 90, I believe, only a short time ago. It is customary for a teacher to prophesy after the pupil has arrived and declared, What did I tell you? Weatherall looked after young Hill at school with almost a father's affection and prophesied for him great things. Only the great things were to be in the realms of science, oratory, and literature. Along about 1888, when James J. Hill was getting his feet well planted on the earth, he sent for his old teacher to come to St. Paul. Weatherall spent several weeks there, riding over the hill roads in a private car and discussing old times with the owner of the car and the railroad. Mr. Hill insisted that Weatherall should remain and teach the Hill children, but fate said otherwise. There is no doubt that Hill's love of books, art, natural history, and his habit of independent thought were largely fixed in his nature through the influence of this fine friend, teacher of children. The Quaker listens for the voice and then acts without hunting up precedents. In other words, he does the things he wants to do. Mr. Hill's long hair and full beard form a sort of unconscious tribute to Weatherall. In fact, let James J. Hill wear a dusty Miller suit and a wide-brimmed hat, and you get the true type of Hicksite. James J. Hill is a score of men in one, as every great man is. But when the kindly, philosophic, paternal, and altruistic Yim Hill is in the saddle, you will see the significance of this story. Just after Mr. Hill had gotten possession of the Burlington, he made a trip over the road. The rear-end flagman at Galesburg was boasting to some of his mates about how he had gone over the decision with the new boss of the ranch. Here, a listener puts in a question thus, What kind of looking fellow is the old man? And he of the red lantern and torpedo scratches his head and explains, Well, you see, it's like this. He looks like Jesus Christ, only he's heavier set. The father of James J. Hill was a worthy man, 
with a good hold on simple virtues, a weak chin, and a cosmos of slaty gray. His only claim to immortality lies in the fact that he was the father of his son. Pneumonia took him, as it often does the physically strong, and he passed out before he had reached his prime. Death is the most joyfulest thing in life, said Thomas Carlyle to Milburn, the blind preacher, when it transfers responsibility to those big enough to shoulder it, for that's the only way you can make a man. I once saw a boy of fourteen on the prairies of Kansas transformed into a man between the rising of the sun and its setting. His father was crushed beneath a wagon that sluiced him and toppled in it crossing a gully. The hub caught the poor man square in the chest, and after we got him out, he never spoke. Six children and the mother were left, the oldest boy being fourteen. A grave was dug there on the prairie the next day, and this boy of fourteen patted down the earth over his father's grave with the back of a spade. He then hitched up the horses, rounded up the cattle, and headed to the cavalcade for the west. He was a man, and in afterlife he proved himself one. On the death of his father, Jim Hill's school days were done. His aptitude in mathematics, his ability to keep accounts, and his general disposition to make himself useful secured him a place in the village store, which was also the post office. His pay was one dollar a week. This training in the country store proved of great value, just as it did in the case of H. H. Rogers, George Peabody, and so many other men of mark. It is one thing to get a job and another to hold it. Jim Hill held his job, and his salary was raised before the end of the first year to $3 a week. On the strength of this prosperity, the struggle on the old farm with its stumps, boulders, and mortgage was given up, and the widow moved her little brood to town. The log house on the rambling main street of the village is now pointed out to visitors. Here, the mother sewed for neighbors, took in washing, made garden, and with the help of her boy Jim, grew happy and fairly prosperous, more prosperous than the family had ever been. Thus matters went on until Jim was in his eighteenth year, when the wanderlust got hold of the young man. His mother saw it coming, and being wise, did not apply the brake. Man is a migrating animal. To sit still and stay in one place is to vegetate. Jim, with $20 in his pocket, started for Toronto on foot with a bundle on a stick, followed by the prayers of his mother, the gaping wonder of the children, and the blessing of Professor Weatherall. Toronto was interesting, but too near home to think of as a permanent stopping place. A leaky little streamer ran over to Fort Niagara every other day. Jim took passage, reached the foreign shore, walked up Niagara Falls, and the next day tramped on to Buffalo. This was in the wonderful year of the 1856, the year the Republican Party was born at Bloomington, Illinois. It was a time of unrest, of a healthy discontent and goodly prosperity, for things were in motion. The docks at Buffalo were all a bustle with emigrants going west, forever west. Jim Hill, aged 18, strong, healthy, farmer boy, lumberman, clerk, shipped as roostabout on a schooner bound for Chicago. His pay for the round trip was to be $10, and board, the money was payable when the boat got back to Buffalo. If he left the ship at Chicago, he was to get no cash. The boat reached Chicago in 10 days. It was a great trip, full of mild adventure, and lots of things that would have surprised the folks at Rockford. Jim got a job on the docks as a checker-off, or understudy to a freight clerk. The pay was a dollar a day. 
he now sent his original twenty dollars back to his mother to prove to her that he was prosperous and money was but a bagatelle and a burden a month and he had joined the ever-moving westward tide he was headed for california the land of shining nuggets and rainbow hopes he reached rock island and saw a sign out at the sawmill men wanted he knew the business and was given work on site in a week his mathematics came in handy and he was handed a lumber rule and a blank book mr hill yet recalls his first sight of a mississippi river steamboat coming into davenport the tall smokestacks belching fire the graceful swan-like motion the marvelous beauty of the superstructure the wonderful letter d in gold or something that looked like gold swung between the stacks it was just dusk and as the boat glided in toward the shore a big torch was set ablaze the gangplank was run out to the weird song of the colored deckhands and miracle and fairyland arrived for a month whenever a steamboat blew its siren whistle jim was on the wharf open-mouthed gaping wondering admiring one day he could stand it no longer he threw off his job and took passage on the sailing palace molly devine for dubuque here he changed boats and boarded a smaller vessel a stern wheeler deck passage for st paul a point which seemed to the young man somewhere near the north pole he was going to get his fill of steamboat riding for once at least it was his intention to remain at st paul a couple of days see st anthony's falls and minnehaha and then take the same boat back down the river but something happened that induced him to change his plans the two days on the steamboat had wearied jim the prenatal scotch idea of industry was upon him and conscience had begun to squirm he applied for work as soon as he walked out on the levee the place was the office of the steamboat company he stated in an offhand way that he had experience on the waterfront in chicago rock island and davenport he was hired on the spot as shipping clerk with the gratuitous remark if you haven't sense enough to figure you are surely strong enough to hustle the agents of the steamboat line were j w bass and company hill got along all right he was a day clerk or night clerk just as the boats came in and it is wonderful how steamboats on the mississippi usually arrive at about two o'clock in the morning jim slept on a cot in the office so as to be on hand when a boat arrived and to help unload it was the duty of the shipping clerk to check off the freight as it was brought ashore also it was the law of steamboating that clerks took their meals on board the boat if they were helping to unload her now as jim had food and a place to sleep when a dubuque and st paul steamboat was tied at the levee all the meals he had to buy were those when no steamboat was in sight being essentially scotch jim managed to time his meals so as to last over and sometimes if a boat was stuck on a sandbar he did the mcfadden act for a whole day it became a sort of joke in the office and we hear of mr bass the agent shouting up to the pilot house of a steamboat avast there sir for five minutes until jim hill stows his hold a part of jim's work was to get wood for fuel for the boats this was quite a business in itself 
He once got a big lot of fuel and proudly piled it on the levee, mountain high, in anticipation of several steamboats. A freshet came one night. The river rose and carried off every stick, so that when the Mary Ann arrived, there was no fuel. Wait until Jim Hill eats his breakfast and perhaps he'll get an armful of wood for us, shouted down the captain in derision. After that, Jim managed to load up a flatboat or two and always had a little wood in reserve. The young man was now fairly launched in business. The mystery of manifesting, billing, collecting, the matter of shorts, overs, and figuring damages were to him familiar. The territory of Minnesota was organized in 1849 and did not become a state until 1858. In 1857, there was not a single mile of railway in the territory, but in that year, Congress authorized the territory to give alternate sections of public lands to any company that would build a railway through them. Through this stimulus, in the latter part of 1857, there was organized a company with the ambitious title of the Minnesota and Pacific Railroad Company. Its line extended from the steamboat wharf in St. Paul to the falls of St. Anthony. There were 10 miles of track, including sidings, one engine, two boxcars, and a dozen flat cars for logs. The railroad didn't seem to thrive. There was no paying passenger traffic to speak of. Passengers got aboard all right, but on being pressed for fares, they felt insulted and jumped off, just as you would now if you got a ride with a farmer and he asked you to pay. Possibly, a rudimentary disinclination to pay fare still remains in most of us, like the hereditary indisposition of the Irish to pay rent. No one ever thought it possible that a railroad could compete with a steamboat, and it was a long time after this that Commodore Vanderbilt had the temerity to build a railroad along the banks of the Hudson and be called a lunatic. So there being no passenger traffic, the farmers carrying their grist to mill and the logs being floated down the river to the mills, the railroad was in a bad way. Something had to be done, so the Minnesota and Pacific was reorganized, and a new road, the St. Paul and Pacific, brought it out, with all its land grants. The intent of the new road was to strike right up into the woods for 10 or 20 miles above Minneapolis and bring down logs that otherwise would have to be hauled to the river. For a time, this road paid, with the sale of the odd-numbered sections of land that went with it. In 1867, James J. Hill became the St. Paul agent of this railroad. He had to quit his job with J.W. Bass to become agent for the Northwestern Packet Line. And as the railroad ran right into his door, he found it easy to serve both the steamboat company and the railroad. You will often hear people tell how James J. Hill began his railroad career as a station agent, but it must be remembered that he was a station agent plus. The agents of steamboat lines in those days were usually merchants or men who were financially responsible, and James J. Hill became the St. Paul agent of the St. Paul and Pacific because he was a man of resource with ability to get business for the railroad. As the extraordinary part of Mr. Hill's career did not begin until he was 40 years of age, our romantic friends who write of him often picture him as a failure up to that time. The fact is, he was making head and gathering gear right along. These 22 years, up to the time that Mr. Hill became a railroad owner, were years of intense activity.
While yet a clerk for J.W. Bass and Company, Mr. Hill made the acquaintance of Norman Kitson, as picturesque a figure as ever, wore a coonskin cap, and evolved from this to all the refinements of Piccadilly, only to discard these and return to the simple life. Kitson had been connected with the Hudson Bay Company. When Hill met him, he was running a fast express to Fort Garry, now Winnipeg, going over the route with ox carts. In summer, it took one month to go, and the same to return. In winter, dog sleds were used, and the trip was made more quickly. Kitson was the inventor and patentee of the Red River ox cart. It was a vehicle made of wood, save for the linchpins. The wheels were enormous, some being ten feet in diameter. It was Kitson's theory that if you could make your wheel high enough, it would eliminate friction and run of its own momentum. The wheels were made by boring and pinning plank on plank, crisscross, and then chalking off with a string from the center. Then you sawed out your wheel, and there you were. The creaking of a train of these ox carts could be heard five miles. Kitson had the government contract for carrying the mails, and managed, with the help of trading in furs and loading up with merchandise on his own account, to make considerable money. When Hill was in his twenties, he went over the route with Kitson, and made several trips, also alone with dog sleds, for his friend when there was a rush of freight. On one such occasion, he had one companion, a half-breed of uncertain character, but who was taken along as a guide, he being familiar with the route. It was midwinter, the snow was heavy and deep, and there were no roads, and much of the way led over frozen lakes and along streams. To face the blizzards of that country alone, at that time, required the courage of seasoned pioneer. Hill didn't much like the looks of his companion. After a week out, when the fellow suggested their heading for Lake Superior and dividing their cargo, Hill became alarmed. The man was persistent and inclined to be quarrelsome. Each man had a knife and a rifle. Hill waited until they reached a high ridge. The snow lay dazzling white as far as the eye could reach. The nearest habitation was fifty miles away. Under pretense of fixing the harness on his dogs, Jim got about forty feet from this man, quickly cocked his rifle, and got a bead on the half-bead before the fellow knew what was up. At the word of command, the rogue dropped his rifle and held up his hands. The next order was to write about face. March. The order was obeyed. A double quick was ordered, and the half-breed lit out, quickening his pace as he got out of range. Hill then picked up the other rifle, put whip to his dogs, and by night had gone so far that he could not be overtaken. When Jim came back that way a few weeks later, he kept his eye peeled for danger but he never saw his friend again. When I heard Mr. Hill relate this story, he told it as simply as he might relate how he went out to milk the cows. One of the men present asked, Didn't you feel sorry for the fellow to turn him adrift on that frozen plain without food or fuel? Mr. Hill hesitated and then slowly answered, I thought of that, but preferred to send him adrift rather than kill him or let him kill me. Anyway, he had only some fifty miles to travel to strike an Indian village. When he was there, we were a hundred and fifty miles apart. You see, I am a mathematician. It is a great joy to figure out what a long distance you are from some folks. 
end of section 22.